Good morning, everybody, and thank you for joining me again this morning on Next on the Tee. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and today I've got two great guests that I am honored to share with you. First up is going to be PGA Tour legend David Graham. David won 38 times as a professional, including two majors, the 1979 PGA Championship and the 1981 U.S. Open. He has the distinction of being one of only five players to have victories on six different continents. And uh, how he's not in the Golf Hall of Fame is beyond me. It's a terrible oversight by the PGA and one I hope that they get right very soon. So I'm looking forward to talking with Mr. Graham about his illustrious career in just a few moments. Later in the show, PGA pro Brian Bateman will join me. Brian is a uh, two-time winner as a professional, once on the Nationwide Tour at the 1998 Carolina Classic and once on the PGA Tour at the 2007 Buick Open. He also hosts his own show on the PGA Channel on Sirius XM called Sea Island Golf. We'll talk about that and much more when he joins me about 20 minutes from now. So I'm excited and, and really privileged to have two great gentlemen with me on the show this morning. But before we get started, I want to kick off the show by saluting the brave men and women serving in our military and everyone listening in on the Armed Forces Sports Radio Network. We thank you for your daily sacrifices and all that you guys do to keep the rest of us safe. We also want to thank those of you who serve in every branch of the military and public service. We truly appreciate what you do to preserve our freedoms and our liberty. It's through your strength and efforts that our way of life is even possible. Our sincere thanks as well to Stephen Lee, Dennis Sparrow, and all the folks at Armed Forces Sports Radio. It's an honor for us to be a part of your network. You can find our show by going to Armed Forces, Radio, Armed Forces Sports Radio Network.org. And also, be sure to give those guys a follow on Twitter. You can find them at the AFRN for the Armed Forces Radio Network. I also want to mention our good friends, Mike Novax, Ben Kerr, Mark Medeski, and all the rest of the great staff over at LastWordOnSports.com. Check those guys out online and on Twitter. Their site's fantastic and, and uh, contains great content across all sports. Their staff of writers are outstanding. You're going to love their site. You're going to go there every day. Find your sports news on there. You're going to love what you see. If you haven't been on their site yet, check it out and then bookmark it. It's LastWordOnSports.com. All right, now next, next on the tee with me on the Kyvan Foods guest line is uh, one of the greatest golfers of all time, Mr. David Graham. D uh, let me give you some background on Mr. Graham. He is from Windsor, Australia. He turned pro at a very young age, which I'll clarify exactly what age with him at a, at a mo in a moment. Uh, a couple conflicting numbers. I want to make sure I get it right. He won 38 times as a professional on six different con continents, an achievement he shares only with Gary Player, Hale Irwin, Bernard Langer, and Laura Davies. He won two major championships, the 1979 PGA and the 1981 U.S. Open. He teamed with Bruce Devlin to win the 1970 World Cup of Golf. He was a member of Australia's back-to-back -back championships in the Dunhill Cup in 1985 and 86, and we are so honored to have him with us on Next on the Tee. Mr. Graham, thank you for joining me this morning. Uh, good morning, Chris. Pleasure to be here. So how are things up in Montana this morning? <laughs> a little chilly this morning, not like uh, in Texas at the moment. Uh, my wife and I came up here for a couple of weeks we're up in whitefish montana up near glacier national park and wow. uh the weather's just perfect about uh 55 degrees now and it'll get up to a high of about 80 degrees tomorrow so 
the park has been incredibly busy this year. They anticipate uh, about 3 million people come through the Glacier Park in the summertime. So it's uh, at this time of the year, it's a, a beautiful place to be. Yeah, no doubt. It sounds fantastic. Good for you. So, Mr. Graham, uh, you know, I'm curious. I read two different accounts of the age that w- at which you turned pro. I read 14 and I read 16. Are either one of those correct? Uh, 16 is correct, yes. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, what that tells me is you were breaking par at an incredibly young age. When did you get started playing and who started you? Well, I started playing left-handed, actually. I played, is that right? I started as, a, as about a 12-year-old. I started playing left-handed. They were the only clubs that I could find, and I played left-handed until I was about 16 years of age when I became an, a second assistant at Riversdale Golf Club in uh, Melbourne, Australia. And the professional there was a very distinguished gentleman by the name of George Naismith, and he accidentally one day came down to the range one dark evening when I was allowed to hit golf balls on the range and I was hitting left-handed and he stood there and watched me hit balls for about 10 minutes and he said, nah, he said, that'll never do. He said, you'll never be any good playing left-handed. He said, I don't want to see you do that anymore. He said, I want you to play right-handed. And so I, at uh, about 16 years of age, uh, started to play right-handed. And I, in hindsight, obviously, he knew more about it than I did. <laughs> now, that's an interesting thing. Now, did did the experience of having played left-handed ever come in handy in a tight lie or a strange place when you're out on tour? Oh, yeah. Most most of the players on tour during their their younger years, they, they experiment with hitting irons with the toe up and can swing left-handed. I mean, Mickelson can swing, as we all know, very well left-handed, but he's also got a pretty good swing right-handed. It's not uncommon to see people with good eye-hand coordination be able to do uh, some things left-handed and right-handed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So being a turning pro at such a young age, at 16, were you emotionally and intellectually ready for what it meant to be a pro and what all that brings? Well, i I mostly would say no, not as far as a touring professional. I think you you have dreams and you have aspirations at, at that age, but you don't have a crystal ball that, that says that you're going to become successful. So uh, yeah. in those days, you went through the process of being an assistant professional, and then you became basically a club professional, but not a touring professional. So you yeah. go, you went through a series of jobs, and I was lucky in as much as I got a position at a golf club manufacturing company in Sydney, and they had a program for their young people that worked within the company to play the Monday Pro-Ams and earn points. And if you earned X amount of points, uh, they would give you uh, a ticket, an airline ticket, to go to the Asian tour, which obviously in the late 60s, early 70s, was pretty raw, but it was still a place to go and, and hone your skills as a player. So that's really how I started into the game, and I was blessed. I went up and played in the Singapore Open, finished second, uh, and then I went on and played uh, seven or eight tournaments in Japan, and I won two or three of those, and I won the 
order of merit, as we now call it, uh, uh, on the Asian tour, and kind of I was off and running. You won your first professional tournament um, in 1967, the Queensland PGA Championship, which at least nowadays is played in February. If it was played in that month in 67, that means that you would have been a few months shy of your 21st birthday when you won it. How big was that win for you, both emotionally and from a confidence perspective, that, that said to you that you belonged playing at that level? Well, I think if you if you look at that scenario, what that meant was simply that I had enough ability to beat the competition of that same era or year. Um, so it allowed me to say that, you know, the best players that were playing on that tour at that time, I was good enough to win. So obviously it gave you confidence. It was a, a four-round uh, PGA championship tournament. So, um, yeah, I mean, you, you go from that and you try to take the next step. Mm-hmm. So as you mentioned, you know, the things that you achieved internationally, 1970 was a heck of a year for you internationally. You won the, the Tasmanian Open, the Victorian Open, Thailand Open, French Open, and the World Cup with Bruce Devlin. What was it like being, you know, from, a, from an emotional standpoint, you know, one of the dominant international players of that time? Well, I think, uh, you know, there was... Uh, I was very fortunate, as were uh, other players of my era, because... Um, Jack Nicklaus won seven Australian Opens, which meant that he came to Australia when I was in the infancy of my playing. Uh, Arnold Palmer came to Australia and played in the Dunlop International and the Australian Masters and the Australian Open. And in those days, the Australian Open was kind of considered the fifth major in golf. And it was considered that because Nicholas Palmer and player came to Australia each year because they had club endorsements with Dunlop in those days. Gary Player won six Australian Oaks. I was blessed that in the start of my career, I got to see, in those days, the three best players in the world. And I got paired with them. I was asked to play practice rounds with them. And I obviously had a chance to to look at uh, a Nicholas or a player I, lo- I, you know, I learned my work ethic from Gary Player. I learned uh, that I had to hit the ball higher from from Jack Nicklaus. And in those days, too, Bruce Devlin was a hugely successful Australian player. And after we won the World Cup, we became the very best of friends. And after a lot of conversation with uh, you know, Nicklaus, tried to talk me into coming to the United States. You know, Gary Player said, you know, take your game to America. You know, Bruce Devlin said, you know, if you want to play uh, a consistent schedule of tournaments, you've got to come to the United States. So it wasn't very long before 1971, my wife and I came to the United States and set up home, and then I played internationally sparingly, but I mainly played on the U.S. tour. So you mentioned the Australian Open and, and, and uh, what it meant to you. Now, you, you mentioned Jack. Now, you won the Australian Open in 77 after having come close in 72, but you ran. Jack won the two years prior and the year after you uh, yes. in 77. But was winning your country's national championship the event you know, that you most wanted as a professional, or were the majors really more what you were after? 
Well, I wasn't sure in in 76. I mean, I clearly uh, was thinking about winning one of the one or two or as many as I could of the big majors. But, you know, the Australian Open in 1976-77 was played at the Australian Golf Course, which was a redesigned Jack Nicklaus golf course. And the sponsor was a gentleman by the name of Terry Packer, who was one of Australia's wealthiest, if not Australia's wealthiest uh, citizen, and he decided to try and upgrade the importance of the Australian Open. So the year I won, I think clearly the two or three years on top of the year I won were the best fields ever assembled in golf in Australia. So I won uh, that particular tournament winning against all of the top players and Nicholas played, player played, Arnold played, uh, you know, just every good player that was a name player in that. So, so I won the Australian Open when I beat a good field. So it wasn't considered a, a, a tournament that I had won with a, a, a low low quality of field. So that in right. itself was very rewarding to me. And, and sometimes you win tournaments and they're... You know, they need a little asterisk beside them because it depends on sometimes. It's not a question of the fact that you won. It's a question of who did you beat to win. Right. No, good. Excellent point. Yeah. When, yeah. when you first came to the U.S. to play, was the terrain and the style of golf any different than what you were used to over in Australia? No, oh, definitely. I mean, I learned to play uh, seaside golf. And um, I, I was a small-framed player, so I learned to hook the ball, and I learned low ball flight so that the ball would roll further. Uh, but it, also I learned to play with the 1.62 size golf ball, not the American 1.68. And that in itself was a significant difference. Uh, but I learned to play in windy conditions, kind of a lot like uh, we see so many great players come out of Texas. Um, but they they learned to play with the American-sized ball, but they also learned to hit the ball high and low. I learned to only hit the ball low, and I was told, um, you know, by a lot of players, primarily Nicholas and primarily Bruce Devlin, that said, you know, I would not be a good player in this country unless I changed my address position, if I learned to stand closer to the ball, so the club face would be on the line for a longer period of time, and I needed to weaken my left hand so that I didn't flip the toe of the club over as much, and I needed to learn to launch the golf ball at a higher angle, uh, mainly because of the smaller greens and the tournament position of the hole locations. You needed a, a golf ball that landed on the green with spin and landed softly. So um, I rebuilt my golf swing um, in the early 70s to cater to being able to play in America. Did you do that on your own? Did you recreate your own golf swing, or did somebody you know, help you try to? That seems uh, like a lot of adjustments to make. Well, you, adjustments are easy to make if what you've got is visually not good enough. And if you play and you're not scoring well, and somebody that has uh, an impeccable reputation and somebody that's got tournament knowledge comes to you and says, 
you know, what you're doing is not going to work on a, on a weekly basis. You need to do A, B, and C, and it will make you play better. I mean, if someone in those days said, can you try and walk over water, I would have tried to walk over water. So cha- changing the mechanics of your golf swing uh, to uh, improve uh, is, is an easy thing to do. It's, um, and if you want to be successful, you do anything to become better within reason. Right. Mm. You uh, you teamed up with Greg Norman and Graham Marsh, and later the year later Roger Davis to win the Dunhill Cup back in back to back years in '85 and '86. At the time, you guys had to be like rock stars down in Australia. How thrilling was it to first team up with those guys and then win that event? Well, of course, Greg Norman gave golf in Australia a shot in the arm. Uh, I didn't have the impact uh, when I won. I was living in the United States. I had become a U.S. citizen. I had started to raise a family in the United States. So I didn't make the trips to Australia, and I didn't have a home base there. So I was kind of a little bit of a turncoat, you might say. Um, <laughs> you know, Greg, Greg was just still living in Australia and and came on the scene with that blonde hair, and he was a big, towering type of guy. And he really gave golf in Australia a, a shot in the arm. He obviously later came back uh, to the United States and played the tour here full-time. But, uh, you know, Australia's a long way away, and it's not a place that you can live and commute and and play competitively well. You have to set up a base in this mm-hmm. country if you want to play golf in this country. All of the European players all now have a base in the United States, primarily in Florida. Right. Going back to 79 when you won the PGA Championship at Oakland Hills Country Club uh, just outside of Detroit, you won it in a playoff over Ben Crenshaw. A little bit of a struggle for you in the last round, right on 18, but the playoff that you had was amazing. Can you take us through that tournament a little bit? Well, um, I don't really have much recollection of it, to be honest with you. <laughs> Uh, after, I'll help you. After oh, I know, <laughs> I've got more than I wish sometimes, other than the end result. Um, you know, I had not won a major. I was nervous as a cat on a hot tin roof. I I made, which I think was to be expected, a bad swing on number 18. Uh, I made a poor club selection. Uh, there were two towering bunkers in front of the green that were the balls were plugging in and and, uh, people were having a terrible time because they put all new fresh sand in those bunkers the week of the tournament. And so the front bunkers were not a pleasant place to be. So I hit one extra club. Uh, I had a clear shot, actually. I couldn't see the flag, but I I had a clear shot for the flight. And I hit one club more than I, in hindsight, should have. And I put it in the back over the green where the gallery had trodden down all the grass, and I got a nasty lie, and I chili dipped my chip, and I chipped it on the green, and I missed the button. I made six, and um, went into a playoff with Ben Cranshaw, and obviously uh, my wife my wife was the only one on my side, and of course Ben was, you know, the new blonde next to be Jack Nicholas, and um, uh I got very fortunate. I'll, they never know how either one of those two putts went in. It was, uh, I think, in hindsight, it was out of my hands. 
Yeah, so you talk about those two yeah. putts went in the playoff. You saved par right. and extended the playoff with an 18-foot putt, you know, yeah. on on the first hole, and then and then a 10-footer a for birdie on on the second hole. Second I mean, hole that, yeah. yeah. So I mean, first, when that when that 18-footer rolls in, what kind of that had to be a huge adrenaline rush. Well, you you know, it's an old cliche, but you do the best you can and. And I made an. I read the putt properly. I made a good stroke at the putt, and um, and fortunately it went in, and and I finished up winning. And um, I learned a lot about my character uh, in that thirty or forty yeah. minutes. And and uh, it was it was a life changing experience for me because the the PGA had a ten year exemption, and. Um, you know, I was always trying to keep my exemption year to year, and then the PGA carried 10 years. So uh, my wife and I could establish home. We started a family. Uh, we we became U.S. residents, U.S. citizens, uh, based on the fact that we knew at least for the next 10 years of our life I could play on the tour. So the benefits right. were huge. The benefits were huge. Plus it was a major. Right. So, you know, you finished it off. I just want to, you know, cap the end of it. You know, the third playoff hole was a 202-yard par three. You hit a four-iron to within four feet. On. Right. Ben put his ball in the bunker, you know, and his yeah. par putt lifts out. You roll in that eight-footer. What's that right. like when, when you see that ball disappear? What was that like for you? Well, it's, it's over. You know, the, the adrenaline still runs high. But uh, I went I went from basically the depths of despair after I played the 18th hole to the to the absolute height of jubilation. So the the emotional rush from where I was to where I went was remarkable. I mean, it took me a week to come down from that and kind of slow down and stuff. So I think I you know, it, that that happens to everybody. You look at McElroy last week at the PGA in Valhalla. I mean, the 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 rush that goes through that last hole and the winning is is remarkable. So you you mentioned Roy I, I, when you won back in '79, you won sixty thousand dollars for that win. Yeah. McElroy just got one point eight million. Could you ever have yeah. imagined, you know, that the purses would grow to this level? Well, I don't think anybody had that vision. I mean, I watched the tour through Nicholas and Arnold Palmer go from $100,000 tournaments to 300000 I played in the 1976 Westchester Golf Classic. Uh, it was the first tournament uh, on the tour to have a $300,000 purse. Um, I don't think anybody could envision... Uh, what Arnold started, and then obviously you call it the Tiger Woods effect. Um, the yeah. prize money is is astronomical, and uh, the retirement fund for the players playing today is astronomical. They have, you know, they have excellent medical. They have um, tremendous uh, fitness programs on the tour. Um, I don't think anybody could have seen it increase to the size that it is. It's I mean, from a financial standpoint, I think everybody wishes we were all playing today, but, 
you know, you look at <laughs> you look at when I played, and then you look at when Hogan, Sneed, and Nelson played. You know, they played for nothing compared to what even the players of the seventies and eighties played for. So, and and every sport's like that. I mean, look at what Mickey Mantle got paid to play baseball. You know, Joe DiMaggio compared to what they right. get paid today. So, you know, I don't ever think that. I mean, I certainly would have liked to have played in this era, but I'm. I think I played in in if you take the money out I think I played possibly in the best era of golf because I played when Arnold played I I played when Nicholas played I played with when Tom Watson won eight majors I played when Lee Trevino played won six majors Johnny Miller won five majors Ray Floyd won five majors I mean I played in an era where a tremendous amount of people won multiple major championships, and and I played in an era where Nicholas won eighteen, so you know it was a it was a great period in golf. Right. No, I couldn't agree more with that. Just a, a couple more, Mr. Graham, before before we let you go. I don't want to miss the eighty one U.S. Open, you know, at Marion Golf Club, which hosted last year's. U.S. Open. You trailed by three going into the final round, and then you put on a golf clinic. After after you missed the first fairway, you hit the next 17 in all 18 greens and regulation, mm. and you turned a three-shot deficit into a three-shot victory. Uh, you know, a, a round that uh, you, you mentioned Mr. Hogan, but Ben Hogan called one of the finest rounds he had ever seen. Take us through that event. Well, that was interesting. I, I played a practice round uh, with Gary Player on the Wednesday, and he made a very nice comment about how he thought I was swinging well and that how Marion suited my style of game. So that was nice of him to say that, and, and Gary's hey. always very sincere with his comments. So that gave me some confidence. And, and about six months before that, he had also told me to start swinging a heavy practice club to increase my shoulder turn and increase the length that my arms went back and I had done that very diligently so that had kind of changed my swing a little bit and I don't know it just it just clicked I mean who could have ever written a script to win a play around like that win a US Open on Father's Day at Marion I mean you just can't sit there and write that script so it was that was a nice, nice win. I had a wonderful time when I went back uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, Marion is just a wonderful, wonderful golf club, uh, entrenched in the history of the game. And uh, who knows, the one that Justin Rose just won, it most likely will be the last Open ever played there. They, they just have a difficult time with all the logistics of having uh, uh, a tournament there the size of that in. It's just, it's a shame that the old style yes. kind of urban facilities just can't cater to the new, the new needs of tournaments. I know it is a sin. You have, you have more major victories than Colin Montgomery, and more majors and total victories than Fred Couples. Yet they got into the Golf Hall of Fame last year, and you're still waiting for the phone to ring. How, how right. is it that the that the PGA can keep forgetting about you? Doesn't make sense to me. I, I don't know how to answer that question. I mean, if you uh, if you look at my record and you look at other members, uh, mine is equal to 
and better than some, and there are people that were put in the Hall of Fame 20 years ago that my record equals. So I, I wish I had the answer to that. I, I don't know. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I have any enemies that are in that organization. I don't think I ever upset anybody uh, that I know of anyway. Um, I don't know. I don't think it can be just an oversight. I mean, clearly, uh, every player would like to be inducted into the Hall of Fame when he's alive. Uh, I think there yeah. might be there might be uh, a better chance this year because of the new format, um, and I think it has been in some cases under the old format more of a popularity selection rather than a let's look at the record selection. So hopefully, the people that are now looking at the inductees will look at my name and look at my record and, and um, uh, we'll see what happens. I know Arnold Palmer's involved in it. He's uh, He knows my record. I know Gary Player's involved in it. He knows my record. So, um, sure, I would love to be in, but I can't answer why I'm not. I don't have the answer to that. And I don't, frankly, spend much time thinking about it because it's, it's out of my hands. Right. So, Mr. Graham, uh, you know, for our listeners, tell them what you're doing now. Well, I'm retired. I um, I, I live in Dallas. I'm uh, spending a lot of time with my grandchildren. I uh, am a member of a very nice club in Dallas, of which uh, Lee Trevino is a member, and he and I are very, very good friends. We play a lot of golf together. Um, I've been giving uh, President Bush 43 some help with his game. There you go. Yeah, and uh, I'm helping uh, him uh, do some things with the Wounded Warriors uh, and uh, working on uh, raising money for his library in Dallas, which is an absolute treat to any listeners going to Dallas. You must take in uh, the George Bush Museum. It's just an incredible place. Um, so I'm active. I play in those uh, greats of golf. Uh, 3M has one, and then Insperity hosts one in Houston. So we play in that each year. Um, and I do a little bit of exhibition golf. I do uh, some speaking now and then, and I do some corporate stuff. So uh, I, I'm as busy as I'd like to be, and you know, sometimes I'd like to be a little bit busier, but my grandkids keep me happy, so that's good. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Well, Mr. Graham, it has been an absolute thrill getting the opportunity to speak with you this morning. I have well, so many other things I'd love to get to talk with you about. I hope you'll come back sometime and share more of your stories sure. and get into some of the other things. Well, can we do it when I'm closer to the East Coast so I don't have to get up so early? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We will do that. Hopefully uh-huh. uh, we can coordinate some schedules, and, and, and that can happen really soon. In the meantime, thank you again for giving up uh, part of your morning and getting up early out there in Montana, and uh, all the best yeah. to you and your family. It's been an absolute thrill. Lovely. Thank you, Chris. Bye-bye. All right. Have a great day, Mr. Graham. All the best to you and your family. Thank you. Goodbye. Wow. That was fantastic. David Graham, two-time major winner, 38 professional victories, what a wonderful gentleman. What a great champion. We've got our next guest, Brian Bateman, hanging on the line. Going to get to him right on the other side of this station, identification.
This is Joe Longinusa from Thursday Night Tailgate, and you're listening to On the Tee with Chris Mascaro on the Armed Forces Radio Network. Now joining me on the Kyvan Foods guest line is Brian Bateman. Let me give you some uh, background on Brian. He's from Monroe, Louisiana, and he's been a heck of a player since a very young age. He won the 1992 Louisiana State Amateur Championship when he was 19. He played college golf at LSU, where he was a three-time All-SEC selection, as well as a three-time All-SEC academic selection. In 1995, as a junior, he was an academic All-American. His senior season, he was an All-American, and he graduated in 96 with his degree in marketing. He played on the nationwide tour from 1997 to 2001 and won the 1998 Nike Carolina Classic. He started playing on the PGA Tour in 2002 and five years later won the 2007 Buick Open by one stroke over Jason Gore, Justin Leonard, and Woody Austin. Along with his two victories, he's had 14 top 10 finishes and has 53 top 25s. And back in June, he started hosting the Sea Island Golf Show on the PGA Channel on Sirius XM, which I regularly listen to on my commute home in the evenings. Brian, thank you so much uh, for being next with me on the tee. Hey, Chris. How are you? Good morning to you. Hey, how are you, Brian? It's great to have you as part of the show. Now, let's start by talking about your show. Now, you engaged me, Brian, from the moment you started that show because I could relate to you. You kicked off, as I recall, you kicked off the, your very first show by saying something to the effect of, I don't have any radio experience, I'm not a radio host, I'm just a guy who loves golf, and I'm going to give this my best shot. I loved that. Talk about how that whole thing came together for you. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, yeah, I've been doing the show since... Um I think my first show was the week after Augusta, the week of Hilton Head. Uh, we had some, uh, the president of SiriusXM, uh, Scott Greenstein, contacted us here on Sea Island uh, back in the fall. He was interested uh, in doing a show that highlighted all of the PGA Tour players that, that called this area home, and he thought the show would be interesting uh, to, to bring light to, to all the players, along with, you know, other celebrities and, and recapping the week in golf and so forth. And so, uh he pitched the idea to us, and we tossed it around, and we thought that he uh, he had some good points. The only question we had was who was going to host the show. And since I do not play much golf anymore and have really never had a problem talking to anybody, <laughs> I took on the I took on the uh, the head job, and I've been in charge of content. I'm in charge of uh, gathering guests and, and putting uh, the show together. As you well know, sometimes can be more difficult than others, but. It's been a lot of right. fun. I've had obviously no experience on the radio, but uh, each show has gotten easier, and I think I'm in my uh, last Wednesday show with my 15th show. So uh, it's been going well. We've got a lot of good feedback, and you know it's always good to catch up with my buddies that are still playing out there when I have them on the air. All right. No, it's great stuff. I really enjoy it. Now, I spent some time in the summers down on Tybee Island in St. Simons Island, for those who don't know, is off the southeast coast of Georgia. For people who don't know where Sea Island is, Talk about that and the beautiful golf courses you guys have down there. Well, it's the, the, going back to the, the whole the whole Sea Island Golf Radio Show. There's a reason why so many tour players live here. We are um, we're about an hour's north of Jacksonville and about an hour south of, of Savannah, uh, right on the ocean. It's just a small kind of beachy town of about ten thousand people. Uh, but within the, the ten thousand people, there's uh, eleven or twelve, I think, tour players now that live here. 
great facilities here at Seattle. We've got uh, five, six, seven, eighteen-hole golf courses that are world class with world class hotels and spas, and um, a lot of flip-flop wearing in the in the winter time because the weather's so great. A lot of beach time. <laughs> Uh, lot, obviously a lot to do outside, whether it's the beach or fishing or riding your bike or horseback riding or what have you. So it's just a great spot. It's, it's for a tour player. Uh, it's, it's fairly uh, uh, easy to travel out of because we're only uh, just across the causeway here, about five miles away from Brunswick, Georgia. Uh, so we have commercial access from that larger airport, uh, but we have a private airport uh, here on the island. Uh, but there's just a reason why Davis Love came here in the late 80s, and there's been 10 or 12 guys that have moved here since because it's just a great place to, to raise a family. It's also a great place to continue your career as a golfer. So you mentioned Davis, love the third night. You all, you also have on the show, right? Davis joins you from time to time. you got Lucas Glover, Todd Anderson joining you on the show, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, well, I've had, uh, like I said, 14 or 15 shows. I've, I've pretty much touched, touched base with everybody uh, that lives here with the exception of Zach Johnson and Matt Kuchar, who will be on – um, probably in the next couple of weeks. Um, but, yeah, Davis has been a repeater uh, a couple of times. Lucas has been on two or three times. Uh, Todd Anderson uh, has been on. I've had Mike Taylor on. I've had Mike Shannon on, Jack Lumpkin, all the Seattle um, teachers. Uh, and then I've had a bunch of celebrities and other golfers that, that have visited here either for the McGladry or come here with their family but don't live here full time. Everybody always uh, is excited to talk about Seattle and St. Simons Island because it's such a great place to live. So, I gotta imagine you're, you're you're getting out on the courses with those guys. What you know, first and foremost, what's your what's your favorite Davis Love or Lucas Glover story? Well, in both of those two guys, Lucas in particular was was probably the biggest reason why I moved here. You know, when I, I like you said earlier, I won uh, the Buick Open in '07, uh, and I went through some uh, some really bad injuries. I had shoulder surgery uh, shortly after my win, and had knee surgery as well. So I was trying to. Once I got healthy, or what I thought was healthy, I, I needed to, to make a move, and I wanted to go somewhere where I felt like I could work on my game. Uh, we all have the same uh, manager, agent, sports sports management company that's here on the Island Crown Sports. And so I was visiting here quite a bit to um, whether I was at the week of before or after the Players' Championship or I was on my way to Atlanta, the old tournament we used to have up there, or Hilton Head. Any time I was close to the southeast, I was coming by the island to practice, and when I decided I wanted a change in scenery from Louisiana, uh, my wife and I, with a young child, decided to move here, and Lucas and Davis were the reasons why. They were some of my closest friends on tour. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when, when I got here, I was still trying to, to chase the dream, if you will, and we played a lot of golf. You know, it, it, it's always fun to, to play golf with your friends uh, that, you, that you've known for years, and, and you're still in awe of the way... That, that they still play. I mean, Davis is, is 50 years old, and I think he's he's hitting the ball further than he's ever hit it. You know, he just he's, he he fights his putter a little bit, which we all do. Um, but you know, he's still trying to compete on the big tour. He's he's got plenty of opportunities to go to the senior tour, but he's still working at it and and still mad at the game, if you will. He still wants to get better, and the same with Lucas. So and look, there's Jonathan Bird, Zach Johnson, Matt Kuchar, Charles Howells in and out, Stuart Sink in and out. Uh, Harris English, Hudson Swafford, Brian Harmon. We're all here. It's almost like the, you know, the media in, started calling the Seattle Mafia years ago, which I don't think any of us would <laughs> be crazy about that term. But but I guess it's just because there's so many of us here, and we all play golf together and, and see each other all the time, whether it's on the golf course or at restaurants or just around the island, because it's just not that big a place, yet it's, there's so many tour right. players that are here. 
That's great. So let's let's talk specifically about you know your career, Brian. Now you lettered four years at LSU, so I gotta ask: Is it killing you watching Alabama win the national, the college national championship? Well, you know what, our management company here, Crown Sports, has signed uh, has signed two of the kids, uh, uh, Corey Winsett and uh, Bobby uh, Wyatt. Uh, so they're on our team now. Uh, yes, I mean the Alabama rivalry, obviously with LSU is. Is, is well documented, but but I'm happy for the team. I, you know, when I was in school, Florida was the team to beat in the conference. They were head and shoulders better than anybody else uh, in the conference. It was Florida, and then it was it was Alabama and us and Georgia uh, and Auburn, uh, really bringing up the rear. We, we Florida would win conference by ten or fifteen shots every year, and now it seems like you know five or six years ago Georgia went through that stretch where they were winning everything, and now right. it seems like Alabama is. Um, they just got some 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 great kids. They're doing a great job recruiting, and a lot of those kids, believe it or not, come here quite often to work with with Todd Anderson, who is an Alabama graduate alumni. Um, he has been uh, as as responsible as anybody for the success of the team uh, because those those kids come here in the summer and work out with TA, and he's he's got them all playing well. Um, but see, I had a great time in Baton Rouge. Uh, obviously, here in St. Simons, I'm surrounded by a lot of red. Which is not Alabama <laughs> crimson; it's the Georgia red, right. and a few Florida blue and orange. But I, I, look, I'm still proud. I still have a, a license plate on my front of my truck, on front of my Jeep that says LSU alumni, and I still wear my my colors proudly. But I'm definitely there outnumbered. You go. <laughs> so, you talk about LSU alumni now. You and David Toms are both from Monroe, Louisiana, and played at LSU. Now he's a few years older than you, but I got to imagine the the Go Tigers runs deep. What influence? Has David had on your career? Well, he was uh, actually he's from Shreveport. He was born in Monroe, but he, he he's grown up. He's still living in Shreveport, which is about a hundred miles away. But uh, right. he uh, when I first came on tour, you know, the tour has a um, kind of an unofficial uh, Big Brother program for uh, rookies on tour to latch on to someone that they, that they respect. Uh, that someone obviously has to volunteer to help with, but just more than anything to give insight into. What tournaments are, are uh, have better hotels? Or what, what hotels are better for certain events? Where to eat? Uh, play practice rounds with? And with the LSU connection, I knew David very well. But when I got on tour, he kind of took me under his wing, and I traveled with him quite a bit. And he was very instrumental in, in helping me get comfortable on tour. Because when you're a rookie out there, you don't you don't know too many guys. Um, you don't know where to stay. You don't know how to play certain certain holes on certain golf courses. Um, and you right. need somebody that's a veteran that that can help you along. And he was he was my big brother uh, first year on tour. He was he was great. I mean, we we've been close friends for a long time. Uh, but see, he's another one that's that's getting close to fifty. Um, time just flies. I can't believe that, that Davis is already fifty and, and DT is almost fifty. But he's still playing great golf. So um, I've always admired his game. You know, he's he's a gritty competitor. Never was overly long off the tee, but had a a hellacious short game was always a tremendous putter and was just a just a competitor, uh, and I think that speaks right. volume for the success he's had in his career. Now, you turned pro back in 1996, got your first professional win in '98 at the Nike Carolina Classic. You shot four rounds in the '60s. How big was that win for you and and for your confidence to let you know that you belong playing at that level? Well, it was it was huge. You know, you know, back then. Um, Q school was a big deal. Uh, yeah. 
I, I think it's unfortunate that we've that it's gone in a, in a different direction now, personally. But uh, you know, back then, Q School was the only way to get on tour, um, and they still had the I think they had the top twenty at the time on the uh, Nike tour was what it was called uh, to get on your tour card. But Q School was uh, <clears throat> was a big part of that, and I got through Q School my first trip, made it all the way to the finals. I came up a few short to get my tour card, but I got my my nationwide card or, or a Nike tour card at the time. And right. it was a short year later that uh, I got hot uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina, and won that event. And it just kind of it, it made me feel like I belong. Like you said, it's you know you never it's it's difficult to win on any level. And when you turn pro, you, you're, you're a little bit bulletproof coming out of college because if you were uh, a decent player in college or, or had some success as an amateur, you know the, the competition is not as deep. And when once you turn pro. Uh, on any level, it's difficult to win. There's just a lot of guys that that are out there that are trying to beat you. So when you do win, it always makes you feel good. And I think that was a, a definite uh, learning point in my career that I knew I could do it. And I was. It took me a few years to get on tour, but at least I felt like that I had um, succeeded at a certain level. And I obviously wanted to get to a different level. But the, the Raleigh win was. I'm still looking at my trophy right now from what's it been 16 years ago here in my office. Uh, it's still sits on myself right next to the Buick Open Trophy. So yeah, it was a big deal in my career. Sure. You, you mentioned Q School, Brian, and you know I've talked to many guys that said getting through uh, Q School had was just as difficult and even had more pressure than when they got out to playing on tour. What was the Q School experience like for you? Well, I've I've been called a lot of things over my career, but one of them that I'm most proud of from different players and, and contemporaries of mine is that I was a Q School expert and. I don't know what my secret was, but I think someone told me at one time that I, I had uh, succeeded as getting through the final stage of Q school more than anybody else. Um, I don't know. I think I did it five or six, seven times, made it all the way through the right. finals. Don't really know how I did it. I just always felt like that once I got to the finals and I had six rounds to play golf, that uh, I just I, – I, my, my – uh, uh, I can't try to think of the word. What, what would I do? My wife would go with me. We would. I would not read any newspapers. I didn't look at the scoreboards. I didn't do anything. I just concentrated on my golf. Felt like if I made it to the finals, I had the confidence to get through it, and I was fortunate enough to do that. Q school was never fun. Um, uh, there's. I've seen guys get uh, nauseated on the first tee. I've seen. I was playing with a with a guy one year. One, one, don't want to name names. But we came to the last hole out at PGA West. And he was two inside the cut line coming to the last hole and had played bulletproof golf all day long, the final round. And he made triple on the last hole and missed it by a shot. Uh, and it was wow. nothing but nerves. You see some crazy things at Q School. Um, and it was just, it's, it, it's your year. It's your year in a six-day six stretch. Some guys handled it better than others. Um, I always felt like that I was just, if I could concentrate on my particular game and not worry about anybody else that I would be okay regardless. And maybe that the clarity that I had starting the week helped me get through it. Um, I hate to see it, hate to see it uh, not allow a college freshman, excuse me, a college senior or someone who's uh, been playing on the mini tours in the summers to be able to have that opportunity to get their tour card. Um, I think with the new changes that they've made, the only way you can get your tour card is through the web.com tour finals, the four events. I, I just hate to see the, the, the surprise factor of some a guy getting through six rounds of the finals of Q school getting his tour card. I mean, there's there's plenty of names of guys that have done it. 
and never looked back. J.B. Holmes, uh, uh, Harris English, just in the last couple of years. Now, if you're a hot shot kid coming out of college, you're you're pretty much well. You are ready. You have no chance of being on tour your first year back. You've got to go to Web.com, and I just hate that they've taken away the, the, the opportunity for either young kids coming out or veterans like myself who maybe not play much anymore, but know in the, that you have that ace in the hole in November if you can get hot at Q School that you can get back on tour the, the following year. So, um, but it's it's hard to describe the pressure. People don't realize. Um, some of the scenes that you would see at Q School, whether it was in Florida or whether it was in California. Yeah, no, I mean, I, like I said, I've heard a lot of stories about, you know, the pressure getting the guys, and like I say, even more so than perhaps when they got onto, you know, when you played on the Nike Tour, the Web.com Tour, uh, the Nationwide Tour now, or on the PGA Tour. Yeah, you know, th- th- I think the thought of, you know, my dream is this close, and then you right. know, trying to deal with that pressure is uh, is something that um, is difficult for some guys. And to your point, you know, some guys succumb to that. But you know, when when you think about what you saw, is it is it the pressure of the dream, or is it the pressure of if I don't make you know make it through here, I got to go through a whole nother year. I got to wait a whole nother year to get my opportunity. Well, I think it. That's a good question, Chris. But it, it depends on where you are in your career. You know, if, if you're a 23-year-old and uh, and you don't have any baggage and you're just turning pro and you played a few events that summer, uh, whether it's on the Hooters Tour or Monday Monday qualified for a, for a nationwide event, you know, it is about the dream. It's about the unknown. It's about uh, playing against uh, guys that you've watched on TV or, or followed in, in events as a kid. Uh, you get up into your 30s and you have a family and you have children, it's a different kind of pressure because you have a lot more responsibilities at home financially and uh, you have to support uh, a small kid at home, or maybe you're divorced and you're uh, trying to uh, take care of child support. So you're in a different part of your life, and right. so the pressure's different. Uh, I always, you know, when I first started going to Q school, I was not married at the time, and I was just out of LSU, and to me it was about the dream. And 10 years forward, after I uh, had been doing it for a few years and never wanted to go back, but it seemed like I always got stuck in November, December. At Q School, my priorities had changed, and it turned into a, you know, it's it's kind of a do-or-die situation, although it wasn't because, you know, I'd been on the PGA Tour in the previous years, and I had some money in the bank, but still you don't want to lose your job. And, right. And you don't want to lose what you were used to. You don't want to use, lose the, uh, the convenience of having a tour card and all the perks that come with it. So it just depended on how old you were and what stage of your career uh, how you handled Q school and how you how you acknowledge what pressure was going to affect you. All right. No, makes sense. So let's fast forward a little bit. The the, the 2007 Buick Open up at Warwick Hills uh, Golf Club up in Michigan. If uh, if you're going to get a win that's either not a major or the Players Championship, I'm not sure there's a better one than that one. The, the par three 17th up there is you know is the second loudest. Uh, whole, I think, you know, they call it the you know, second largest outdoor cocktail party after the Florida-Georgia game. John Daly called it a beer drinkers tournament. What was it like for you getting through and playing that hole all week long and then getting that win? Well, it's, that's, that's nice of you to say. It was obviously the, the high point of my career. And I, I really I hate that we don't have that event anymore. Uh, you know, when, right. when if we back up maybe 10 years ago, we had uh, – when I first came out on tour, we had ten, uh, excuse me, we had four 
tour events that were Buick sponsored. We had Callaway Gardens uh, in Columbus, Georgia. We had Hartford. We had San Diego, and then we had the Buick Open in in Michigan, and it was one of the oldest events we had. And then when Buick ran into some trouble financially and pulled out of some sponsorships, uh, Callaway Gardens went first and couldn't find a sponsor for it. San Diego and and Hartford both found sponsors, uh, but the Buick Open uh, did not. And that that event was a huge part of the economy and the fabric of, of Flint, Michigan, Grand Blank, whatever you want to call it. Uh, right. That whole area, and when we lose that event, it just it just decimated the town. Probably one of the classic golf courses we played on tour, old school, very uh, shouldn't say very short, but not overly long, tree lined with really fast greens. And because of the the, the support of the town, uh, the week of the Buick Open was a big party, and it had tremendous support from the area. Everybody in town, I think, had a ticket. And about half of those people would end up on the 17th hole on Sunday and sat on the weekend at least um, to partake in whatever beverage of choice, but uh, to get rowdy. And it was uh, it was quite a thing. You know, I don't know if it compares quite to to the 16th hole in Phoenix, but the venue is a lot smaller. Um, right. I think per capita, I think per capita, it was a big, it was a bigger venue than Phoenix. Um, but what a great scene! I mean, I, I was. Uh, I was I was tied to the lead coming to the 17th hole on Sunday uh, and missed the green to the right and, and had a really difficult chip and, and flopped it over a bunker down to about six feet and made the putt for par, which was a huge a huge get for me because I was definitely feeling the nerves. Uh, and then I came to 18th, the 18th hole and hit a good drive down the middle and looked at my caddy, not really knowing where I stood. I had a feeling I was either in the lead or, or close, and he said, birdie wins. Which for a, you know, my caddy had never won, never been caddying for any player on tour that had won before. I had never won before, and I think it, it speaks volumes for him and his confidence in me that he didn't say a par ties. He said a birdie wins. Nice. So I had the perfect club on an eight iron, and I hit it uh, back left ten about fifteen feet from the hole. And once I got up on the green and started looking at the putt, I just felt like I had a calm come over me, and I just felt like it was my turn to uh, to make history, and uh, the putt went right in the middle. And it was a pretty neat feeling. I bet. What was the adrenaline rush like when you realized this is going in? Well, it, I was, it was such a blur after the putt went in, and I went over and, and hugged my caddy's neck, and I was waiting for Scott Replank, who I was playing with, to finish out. And I looked at my caddy, and I said, is it over? And he said, it's over. And I said, is it really over? And he said, yeah, we won. Which I already knew that, but it was like I needed reinforcement, that it, you know, there was not going to be any surprises. Um, right. Uh, after I signed my card and, and, and saw my wife and, and went through all the media obligations afterwards, is when it, when it really hit me. Uh, all the phone calls that I had afterwards were great. Uh, talking to my parents, talking to my agent, talking to my instructor, uh, and then my wife and I went to dinner and don't really remember much about dinner other than the maitre d brought us over a big bottle of wine and said compliments to the owner. Thanks for coming in and sharing. Nice. Uh, Sharing some time with us, and then I remember getting up the next morning to fly home, and I had this one of the worst headaches I've ever had. Uh, it wasn't from the wine. Uh, it was I, not. I think it was. No, 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 no. I, it was the adrenaline. I, I firmly believe that it was an it was an adrenaline hangover. Um, because it was just a. I remember it being almost a just almost like a migraine. Um, 
And in talking to some guys later, some other players that had, I was telling them about what I was feeling, they said they had felt the same thing before on on, on either wins or winning matches in Ryder Cups or, you know, it's it's a combination of adrenaline and not, probably not getting as much sleep as you really thought that you did. Um, but what a great win. And then that's when I got home, I started thinking about all the perks of, of Augusta, um, you know, the FedEx, that was the first year of the FedEx Cup playoffs, which supplanted me right in the middle of that, which the wind got me in the first three events. It got, got me in all three, actually, except for the Tour Championship. So there's a lot of perks. Got me in the Maui, um, the first tournament of the year, uh, the Tournament of Champions. My wife was, at the time, about five or six months pregnant. So there was a lot going on in my life wow. in the summer of 2007. Um, Not which bad. seems like eons ago. But uh, <laughs> but time flies, man. It's 2014, so I'm trying to focus now on you know moving forward with the show. I'm doing some financial advising now and uh, working for a, a great group of guys out of Athens, Georgia, uh, for a big financial firm there, and not playing a whole lot of golf anymore. Still playing some, but kind of enjoying life. I've got a first grader, uh, Oliver, who's uh, who keeps my wife and I busy, and so I'm just kind of living the life down here on Sea Island with. With all with all the golfers and uh, some new friends that we've made. That's all fantastic stuff, Brian. One one more before I, I let you go. You talked about getting into the Masters, you know, and you know, I'm, there's not a better, you know, more favorite place on the planet for me than Augusta National. I've been a, a, a ticket paying patron for for many years on the you know on this side of the ropes. I, I got to know, I try to live vicariously through guys who've had the opportunity to be on the opposite side of the ropes. What was it like the first time you, you drove up Magnolia Lane and then got the opportunity to play Augusta National? Well, how many, how long do you have? You got an hour? Because <laughs> I could go on all day. Uh, you know what? I never, I never, I never went to Augusta. I uh, never went to the Masters. It was kind of a dream of mine as a kid that you know, if I ever set foot on the property, it was going to be as a player. Um, and so after the Buick and, you know, I was battling shoulder injuries then, even when I, the week that I won, I was having some shoulder problems and probably was, was leading towards some type of surgery, uh, to get it, get it, uh, repaired after the win, but there was no way I was going to miss Augusta, you know, eight, nine months after the win. So I, I made it through that year on a bump shoulder. Uh, I remember the week well, I did not play Houston the week before. We were, uh, well, let's backtrack. A month before that, I was in Tampa playing uh, at the uh, the event there in Tampa, and my caddy and I flew up one afternoon to do the icebreaker, if you will, at Augusta. I uh, called ahead, you know, because you get free practice rounds as many times as you want to play if you're in the next year's event. And so we went up, and it was about 45 degrees and rainy and windy, and we played the golf course uh, Took in all the sites, uh, had a local caddy because they require you to use a, a local caddy during practice rounds before the tournament starts. So my regular tour caddy just walked with me. We took notes. Uh, I got there Sunday night, excuse me, Sunday afternoon, and David Thomas and I went out late Sunday afternoon, played the back nine, uh, started off 10, and they do not allow patrons on the golf course on Sunday. So literally, it was David and his caddy Scott and my caddy Skillet. There was the four of us on the back nine of Augusta, and we were the only ones out there. Uh, got back there on 11, 12, 13, and it was like the golf course. Well, it was. The golf course was, we had it all to ourselves. And it was the most tranquil, peaceful time I've ever had on a golf course. Just taking in all the history and, 
not hearing anybody talk other than what was being said in our group, it was pretty cool. Uh, played had a good practice on Monday, Tuesday, did the par three on Wednesday, which, by the way, is probably the second most sec- – well, maybe the most nervous I've ever been is on the first hole of the par three because you've got a right? hundred tw- uh, you got a 125-yard shot to a, a green that's about 10 feet by 10 feet. You've got 1,500 people 15 deep around the green that if you just block it about 12 steps, you're going to hit somebody in the head. Um, yeah, that's it's crazy, the part three. But it, that was a lot of fun. David and I played in that as well. Steve Flesh and David uh, Toms and I played a threesome there. And then on Thursday, I was ready to go. And I happened to, to birdie uh, the last hole, and I was – I think I was tied for second after the first round um, with a 69. So it was a great experience. I remember signing my scorecard on, on Thursday, and the ESPN CBS guy came and grabbed me and took me straight to Butler Cabin and did a live interview with Mike wow. Tarico. And I'm I'm fresh off the 18th green. I uh, hadn't even seen my wife yet, and I'm on live television at Augusta with Tarico in the Butler Cabin. So that Thursday was uh, – was pretty compelling, uh, if you say the least. The weather turned kind of. The weather got bad on us on on Friday, and the stroke average went up. I would say three, three and a half, four shots. It got real windy and cold, uh, but I ended up finishing top twenty for the week. Uh, I think yeah. I led the field in greens hit that week. Played well, enjoyed it, and always wanted to to get back. Uh, I think I missed uh, returning based on my play by two shots. Uh, I missed wow. a couple of. I had a, had a 10-footer on 17 and 18 on Sunday for birdie that I've missed both of them, which if I make those two, I'm in the next year because I finished top 14. But what an experience. What a great what a great venue. And I don't think people realize how hilly that golf course is. You've never been. Right. Uh, it's, it's yeah, not no, the walk. TV doesn't do it justice. No. What a great yeah, system. High cool 20th with, Bub, with Bubba Watson, Zach Johnson. So, you know, a lot, lot to brag about now. That's that's a That's a wonderful finish. Yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. I just wish I uh, wish I'd had more than one opportunity to play there. But I am very thankful for the one chance that I that I had at Augusta because it was a, it was a great week. Good for you, Brian. So, Brian, for for our listeners that want to follow you online and over social media, how can they find you? Well, you can follow uh, follow my show at uh, on Twitter. It's at C Island Radio, and you can follow me individually on Twitter Twitter at at D Brian Bateman. Got it. All right, Brian. And I am, uh, I'm live. I'm live every Wednesday night. It's at seven o'clock Eastern on Sirius XM two eight XM ninety three. So tune in if you can. And I appreciate you. Are you going to, Chris? That nah, makes me feel nah, good. Nah, there you go. Well, you know I'm listening every Wednesday night. Are you guys year <laughs> round? You going to be year round, or are you go? You guys cutting it off after the season? No, nah, we're going. We're straight. We're every Wednesday. How many there Wednesdays there are in the years? How many Wednesdays I'll be on? <laughs> But just tune in. It's a lot of fun. I'm enjoying it. There you go. Absolutely. Brian, thank you so much for taking time out of your Saturday morning to join me. You're fantastic. I hope you'll do it again sometime because I had a lot of fun. Oh, oh, I'd love to, and we'll have to reciprocate. I'll have to have you on one Wednesday so we can talk everything golf, as I like to say. There you go. I look forward to that. Thank you. All right, Brian, enjoy the rest of uh, your weekend. All the best to you and your family. All right, you too, pal. Thank you very much for having me. We'll talk soon. All right, take care, Brian. 
Brian Bateman, what a great guy. And, and Sea Island Golf, like I said, it's a great show. I enjoy Brian. And the thing that, one of the things that I enjoy most about Brian, like I said, is when he kicked it off. You know, I'm not a radio guy. You know, I've not done this before. I have no experience, but I'm going to have some fun with it, which is exactly, you know, how I feel about this show. So I relate to Brian a lot, and uh, I look forward to having him back on the show with me, hopefully very soon. All right, everybody, it's time to put a bow on this one. My sincere thanks to Mr. David Graham, who was an outstanding guest, as was Brian Bateman. So it's such a wonderful time this morning, and I thank both gentlemen for being a part of the show. And I thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you uh, the very most. Please also check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, uh, with me, my co-host Bob Lazari, and our announcer Joe Lajanusa. You can hear us right here on Armed Forces Sports Radio as well as Blog Talk Radio, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, radio sites across the Internet. You can find us, and you know, please check us out online, ThursdayNightTailgate.com. Our show airs uh, weekly, just like this one, uh, airs weekly every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. We're joined every week by legends from around the NFL. We are official partners of the NFL Alumni Association, also the official radio show of Mike Ditka's organization, The Gridiron Grace. So we, we help you catch up with your NFL heroes that uh, you grew up with. We've got five of them joining us every single week on the show. Please. Check us out. You can also find our show uh, on uh, Facebook and this show on Facebook. So please go to our show pages. Give us a like. That's important to us too. And like I said, you can check us out online. This show you can find at nextonthetea.net and our other thursdaynighttailgate.com. You can stream or download any of our archived episodes for free and keep up to date with who our uh, future guests are going to be. Until next week, my friends, thank you so much for being a part of the show and listening. Hit them straight. of a drill instructor directing a musical. Town hut! Get those tap heels in line and let me see those jazz hands! Are you bundling your home and auto insurance through Progressive? Can you hear me through those sequins? Bundle your home and auto through Progressive and save. Left, 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 and step no change. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates. Home insurance provided and serviced by other select insurers. And this is my impression of a drill instructor directing a musical. Town hut! Get those tap heels in line and let me see those jazz hands! Are you bundling your home and auto insurance through Progressive? Can you hear me through those sequins? Bundle your home and auto through Progressive and save. Left, 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 and step no change. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates. Home insurance provided and serviced by other select insurers.